Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who was convinced that following Jesus demanded sacrifice. As Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party rose to power in Germany in the 1930s, Bonhoeffer and many others like him, hundreds and thousands of others like him, courageously spoke out against the direction that Hitler and the Nazis were taking the country. In 1938 and 39, Bonhoeffer realized that war was inevitable, but his conscience wouldn't allow him to pick up a gun and fight in Hitler's war, so he decided to take a teaching job at a seminary in America, got on a boat, and sailed for America. But, literally on the boat, right over to America, his conscience began to be troubled. He grew uneasy about his decision to flee Germany and to leave so many Christians behind. 26 days after arriving in New York City, Bonhoeffer had made up his mind. He got back on a boat and sailed back to Germany. And there, once he came back, he joined his family who had been involved in this conspiracy plot to assassinate Hitler for many years. So he, when he got home, he joined their efforts. Bonhoeffer believed, it's, it's debatable, by the way, whether he should have done this, whether every Christian should do this. Uh, Bonhoeffer is just an example of what one guy did. His example is not meant to be definitive to what we must all do in, the similar, in a similar situation. But he decided that he should join his family's efforts to take out Hitler in, uh, in Germany. He believed his reason was made because he believed that failing to stand up for those who were being persecuted would be to disobey God's call to live out one's beliefs. He firmly believed that he should do something for the sake of those other Christians in Germany who were being persecuted. He couldn't just stand idly by in America or in Germany while the Nazis either drove out or killed evangelical Christians. Now, you may know this, but a lot of Christians in Germany acquiesced to Hitler and the, the Nazi party, and they did what they were told to do. They got in line and were, in a sense, complicit with the evils of Nazi Germany. But there were a lot who weren't. There were a lot who weren't, and Bonhoeffer is one of those many. Years earlier, before Bonhoeffer had to make this decision on what he would do, he wrote a book, a famous book, called The Cost of Discipleship. In the book, he warned Christians to not buy into the idea of cheap, of cheap grace. Cheap grace. The idea was um, common at that time and now that following Jesus doesn't have to cost us anything. Uh, this idea is prevalent in a lot of Baptist churches, evangelical churches, where you pray a prayer, you get dunked in water, you know, you believe cognitively, uh, cognitively in a God in heaven and in Jesus, but, you know, receive grace, so you don't have to go to hell one day, you get to go to heaven one day, but you don't actually change. There's no actual change in your life. He calls this cheap grace. It's grace that costs you nothing. Of course, this grace cost Jesus everything. Bonhoeffer, in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, famously says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany because he was willing to pay whatever price necessary to follow Jesus on behalf of other Jesus followers. And tragically, in 1943, he was arrested, put into a Nazi a concentration camp. And two years later, just three weeks before the war ended, he was executed. All because he believed that following Jesus required, even demanded, sacrifice. And demanded sacrifice on behalf of other Jesus followers. Jesus himself said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. So Bonhoeffer's example is the rule for Christians, not the exception. Jesus says that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and you have to deny yourself and you have to get on the road to Calvary and follow Jesus there. 
This will undoubtedly look different in each of our lives. Some of us will pay with our lives. Some will pay with their reputations. Some will pay with their careers. Some will pay with their possessions. But we all will pay something. We will pay something. Or will prove to not be Jesus' followers. Following Jesus by definition means denying ourselves and joining Jesus on the road to the cross. But, using Bonhoeffer as our guide, this road to the cross that we're on should not be thought of in individualistic terms. It's not a road that you're on just with you and Jesus kind of doing your thing with Him by yourself with Jesus. No, it's a road that you're on with other followers of Jesus headed to the same destination. It's a corporate road. It's a collective road. It's a journey we're on together. Following Jesus must be done in community with other believers or in the context of a local church. During this series on the church, I've said repeatedly that Jesus calls us to Himself and into community with other believers. When He calls us to Himself, He also calls us to other believers. Believers, He calls us into His body, into the church. And one of the prices we pay together, one of the prices we must pay in following Jesus on this road to the cross together is that we all must be willing to commit our lives to the spiritual care of one another. We must be willing to place ourselves in a position to care for each other, to watch over each other, and allow other believers to do the same for us. Again, this road to the cross is not a road that you're on by yourself. This road to the cross is a road that you're on with other followers of Jesus. Our church covenant describes this like like this. It says, We covenant to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So to be a member of our church, you have to commit, covenant, promise to walk with each other in such a way that you're showing proactive care to them and receiving proactive care from them. Now this kind of spiritual care is very difficult. It takes time and effort It's especially difficult in our privatized and individualistic culture when, let's be honest, we all just want to be left alone. (laughs) If I need something, I'll let you know, pastor, brother, sister, right? Isn't that kind of our mantra? But we're called to something more proactive than that, something more intentional than that, something more loving than that. And this is one price we pay on the road to the cross. This is a price we must pay as we seek to follow Jesus Together, we must commit to caring for each other spiritually. Yes, physically, we meet physical needs as we can and are able to, but also caring for each other spiritually. And might I just ask, if we don't do this, who's going to? If we don't care for each other, as brothers and sisters in the church, who's going to care for you? Is the world going to care for you? You're like, John, I've got these Christian friends. Great. I'm happy you have Christian friends. But there's no formal attachment between you guys. There's no accountable relationship. They can check in with you and really care about you whether they want to or not, if they want to or not. But in a church, it's different. In a church, it's different. In a church, it's a formal attachment, a formal accountable, accountable relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ that says, I will do this even if it hurts, even if it takes time that I don't want to give up, even if it means staying up late and on the phone and writing emails and having coffee and having lunches and having breakfasts, I will care for my brothers and sisters because I must. And I will receive this care from them because I need it. This is a price that we must pay together as we seek to follow Jesus. Now, one of the primary components of our spiritual lives, and therefore one of the primary components of caring for each other spiritually, is that we must be willing to address sin. 
Our battle with sin is a primary component of our spiritual lives, and so we must be willing to address sin in each other's lives and in the life of the church. A relationship with Jesus means a new kind of relationship with sin, one in which sin is taken seriously for the good of the individual and the good of the church. When, when sin isn't taken seriously, the individual and the church is hurt. So in His love, God gives His church permission Indeed, commands us to address any of our own who persist in sinful behaviors. But the Bible actually commands us to tell each other where we're sinning, to not hide this stuff. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. When was the last time you told someone your sin? (laughs) Something we all love to do, amen? Hey, you know, I really failed at this. I'm really struggling with this. We don't want to do this, but the Bible commands us to do this because our battle with sin is one of the primary components of our spiritual lives. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, Jesus gives this whole chapter, this long discourse on sin, on how it should be addressed in our individual lives, how it should be addressed in the church, and what we should do when someone sins against us. So find Matthew 18 in, in your Bible. Matthew 18, that's the first gospel of the New Testament. This is going to be our primary text as we discuss how the church addresses sin in their body. This is often called church discipline. So as we continue our topic, or excuse me, our series on the topic of the church, we're doing a week on church discipline. As I prayed earlier, this is a topic or a practice that is largely forgotten in churches. This idea that, that a brother or sister in Christ could actually be removed from the church because of sin is foreign to most of us and not practiced by many of our churches, but it's in the Bible. So let's see what Jesus says. I want us to start at the beginning of Matthew 18 because Jesus builds a case towards church discipline. The discipline text is verses 15 through 18, but verses 1 through 14 will help us see why discipline should be practiced. So we're going to try to get our bearings and set the context for Jesus' words about discipline later in the middle of the chapter by starting here at the first in verse 1. Let's do verses 1 through 4, and then we'll go from there. Matthew 18, 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is using an object lesson to illustrate what it means to be a Christian. The disciples asked Jesus about who will be the greatest in the kingdom in verse 1. Kingdoms, of course, typically have hierarchies, so it's a fair question. The disciples are wondering who's going to be near the top. But Jesus' kingdom isn't like other kingdoms. If you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, Jesus says, verse 3, you have to be small. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, if you want to grow in greatness in Jesus' kingdom, you have to be small. You have to stay small. To enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, verse 3, one must turn. Maybe your translation says change or be converted and become like a child. Truly I say to you, verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This language of turning implies means that becoming a Christian requires a fundamental change in someone's life. We must turn from ourselves and our sin and turn to God through childlike faith in Jesus. We must become like children by turning from ourselves, humbling ourselves before God, confessing our need to God, admitting our sin and our inability to take care of ourselves just like a child would, and running to our parent, so to speak, the one who can care for us. The one who can help us. To enter the kingdom of God, we have to become like children. Not by becoming childish, but by humbling ourselves before God and joyfully throwing ourselves on Him. 
This is a beautiful picture of what, it, of what receiving the gospel looks like. I know this illustration won't resonate with everyone, but I can't help but use it because it so resonates with me and I think with many parents. My favorite part of the day is when I step through my front door and um, somehow all the kids are alerted that I'm home. <laughs> I think they sense it. And they come running, screaming, laughing, usually Lydia with her little hands in the air, and just, just fall into my arms. This is what becoming a Christian looks like. A pure joy, a pure dependence, a pure desire to be with the Father, to understand your smallness, and to long for relationship with something bigger than yourself. This is what becoming a Christian looks like. You, in other words, you won't be a Christian. You are not a Christian unless you turn from all of your self-sufficiency and run with your arms open and just throw yourself on the mercy of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Joyfully throwing yourself on His care and on His substitutionary work for us on the cross. Understanding that you can do nothing to save yourselves and look to Him. So after this illustration in verses 1 through 4, Jesus then begins to address several aspects of our life together in the community of the kingdom and in the community of his followers. His focus in these next verses is on how we handle sin in our lives. It's verses 5 through 9, then verses 10 through 20, he talks about how we should handle sin in the lives of others. In the end of the chapter, which we won't consider tells us how we should respond when we've been sinned against, verses 21 through 35. But let's look first at verses 5 through 9 and see how we should handle sin in our lives. Jesus says two things here. Jesus says that His followers should have a carefulness and a seriousness towards sin, verses 5 through 7. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Verses 5 through 6, child there, little one, refers to Christians because he's just referred in the previous verses to a child or used a child to demonstrate what it looks like to be a Christian. Verse 5, he says that he's saying that when we receive or welcome another Christian, we receive Jesus himself. Verse 6, he says that when a Christian causes another Christian to sin, there are great consequences. Then verse 7 says that though there will always be temptations in the world, we should not add to the world's temptations by leading one another to sin in the church. There should be a carefulness. A Christian, a child of God, walks with a carefulness in and around their brothers and sisters. So, for example, gossiping in front of other believers will make it much harder for your brothers and sisters not to also gossip. Taking a friend to a bar who's had an alcohol problem would be a stumbling block for that brother or sister. Boasting about our material possessions would not help our brothers and sisters live sacrificially and generously with their possessions. The point is we should be so concerned with other people's holiness that we wouldn't do anything to cause them to sin. We should live carefully around others. But then Jesus goes on to say that we should take our own sin very seriously. Verses 8 through 9, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is using strong language here to tell us that we should take sin seriously in our lives, that we should do whatever we have to do to get rid of it. Because sin, if not addressed, if not repented of, will send you to the fires of hell. That's what Jesus says. Sin left unaddressed 
and running rampant, unrepented of, will send you to hell. This doesn't mean that we won't sin. We inevitably sin every single day. Jesus is talking about a new posture, a new way of approaching the sin in our lives. He's saying that there should be a violence that characterizes our fight against sin. Followers of Jesus aren't cool with our sin. We don't just say, oh yeah, you know, that's what I've always done. That's just who I am. And not change. We hate our sin. We grieve over it. We make war against it. We do whatever we have to do to kill it, to get rid of it, to remove it. Because we understand that, as I said earlier, coming into a relationship with Jesus means coming into a different or new relationship with our sin. So we have a carefulness and we have a seriousness in our individual lives toward sin. One of the prices we pay as Jesus' followers is the price of walking carefully around our brothers and sisters and the price of taking our own sin seriously. Now let's keep moving. I'm trying to get us quickly to the text on discipline. But let's do 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 14 say, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This text is used to argue that we do indeed have guardian angels. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. Angels are real. I do know that. I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is giving us one of the reasons why we should do the things he mentioned in verses 5 through 9. Why should we be careful about sin? Why should we be serious about sin? Well, verses 10 through 14 Say, Jesus gives us this parable of the lost sheep. It's about Christians pursuing other Christians who are straying from the Lord. Jesus' logic is simple. Here's his logic. We should pursue straying Christians because God does the same. If God sends, verse 10, if God sends out angels to attend to the needs of His children, then how can we remain indifferent to the needs of His children? God cares deeply about the spiritual condition of His little ones, and so should we. If God will send an angel, then we should go have coffee. Amen? If we see a brother or sister about to walk over the ledge because they've wandered away from the flock, then we go after them because God went after us and God also is going after them. And that leads us into what Jesus then teaches on church discipline. This is the context I hope we have this in our mind. We should be careful. We should be serious. We should be diligent to go after those straying. This is the context that sets up Jesus' teaching on church discipline, in particular in verses 15 through verses 20. Let me read these verses and then we'll discuss. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Jesus is explaining what this pursuit of straying sheep looks like, what it should look like in the context of a local church. This is the clearest teaching in the New Testament on church discipline. Now I recognize that church discipline is about as popular in the church today as publicly spanking your kid at the grocery store. 
No one wants to talk about this, much less do it. But Jesus found time in his public ministry to teach upon it, and the inspired writers of Scripture were led to put this in the New Testament. So here we are, we're going to discuss it. The disappearance of church discipline from modern churches has come at a great cost. One writer says, quote, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanism, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. This illness is due, at least in part, to a, neglected, a neglect of church discipline. In other words, he's just saying, this writer is saying, he wrote this book a long time ago, why do we get so upset that the church is so weak and we never do church discipline? We rant and rave about how Christians aren't very strong anymore. Churches aren't very strong anymore. The church looks, looks just like the world nowadays. And yet we aren't willing to do the hard work to ensure that the church looks like Jesus. And unlike the world. Sickness has been allowed. Infections have been allowed to work their way into the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, decay Decline and death has been the result in so many churches. Now, before we look at each step Jesus gives us here in church discipline, again, notice how these verses are connected back to verses 10 through 14 in particular. Just as the shepherd is concerned about the one straying sheep and seeks to rescue it, so also the church should be concerned about straying sheep and seek to rescue them. Why do I point this out? Why am I at pains in pointing this out? Because this means... This means that the church should confront straying sheep every time they stray because sheep are valuable to God. Because every sheep is valuable to God. Because every sheep is loved by God. In other words, I'm drilling down on this and the connection here in context is because church discipline is not about judging others out of some self-righteousness. It's about a rescue operation. It's about restoration. It's about love. It's about not letting your friends keep going on the broad path that leads to hell. Church discipline is a mechanism God gives His people to go after His people because He loves His people. He wants to rescue them and restore them. Of course, this rubs our culture the wrong way because in our culture, to say no to anyone is inherently sinful. But I suggest that we follow Jesus' wisdom on this and not the world's. And out of love, we go after those who are walking away from the Lord. Now, let's get into what Jesus says here. He outlines four steps that should characterize this rescue Mission, step one, verse 15, there must be private correction. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Whether Jesus is referring to someone who sins specifically against you or someone who's living in unrepentant sin in general, the first step is the same, private correction. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The goal is to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Instead of talking to other people about someone's sin, you need to go talk to that person about their sin. Gossip undermines the whole process of church discipline. Jesus instructs us to go directly to the person in question. First, we don't have to go to anyone else. He says, go to them. You go to them. You don't have to get anyone else involved. You don't have to even go tell the elders. Before you go directly to the brother or sister and engage them in a private conversation, you and them alone. Now, this kind of conversation only needs to happen with a brother or sister who's continuing in sin, refusing to turn from it, someone who's unwilling to change. Look, this kind of conversation isn't needed every time you hear of sin. Every time you hear of someone who's done something wrong. That would be overkill and unnecessary. It's needed, this kind of conversation, this private conversation is needed when someone is caught in sin and refuses to turn from it. In that kind of situation, we should 
love our brother or sister enough to talk to them privately before we talk to anyone else. Love them enough to not sit back and watch them wander deeper and deeper into sin. Love them enough to not expect the elders or someone else to go do something. Years ago, when I first started here, I received an anonymous letter from someone. (laughs) And it said, hey, have you heard about this person and this person and this sinful thing in the church? And I, of course, was like, no, I haven't heard of that. And I couldn't do anything about it, really. What should have happened is that person who wrote under the, you know, this, this safety of anonymity should have gone directly to them. If they have biblical grounds for saying that, hey, this behavior is wrong, they don't need me. They don't need the elders. They can go privately, you and them alone, and talk through it. We must love each other enough to have hard conversations, private conversations about things that are off, patterns of sin that are plaguing our life. Pattern is the key. Pattern, not instances. Bonhoeffer, again, he wrote a lot of great stuff. He wrote a book called Life Together. He describes why this step is crucial. He writes, quote, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will the power of sin will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought to the light. So in love, we go to one another privately, you and him alone, to discuss what's going on. That's step one. Now, If the brother or sister acknowledges the sin, owns it, repents, and asks for forgiveness, then Jesus says, you have gained your brother. But then in verse 16, if they don't do that, Jesus says a second step is required. If he does not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The Old Testament required multiple two or three witnesses to establish a fact in a court setting. That's Deuteronomy 19, 15. Jesus applies the same principle here. The goal in this step is to bring in one or two other believers, preferably those who know and care for this other person, to establish evidence. The point isn't to gang up on the person, but to involve other believers to help you think through the situation and, if necessary, to serve as witnesses to the fact that this brother or sister is indeed living in sin and not willing to do anything about it. Jesus' instruction here is so practical because He knows that our usual response to confrontation is to get defensive. We get defensive because we're proud and we don't like admitting when we're wrong. So that one-on-one conversation, that first step will often, often, not always, but often not go well because it creates this defensive posture and this unwillingness to see or believe or understand what's happening as sin and this refusal to change. And so Jesus, knowing that, says, okay, take two or three and go have a conversation again. Remember what Jesus says back in verse 3 of this chapter, Jesus says that we must become like little children to, bec- uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says we must be humble to enter the kingdom of heaven. So later here in this verse, verse 16, he's saying by bringing other believers into the situation, the goal, frankly, is to humble the person living in unrepentant sin, hopefully leading them to repentance, being confronted by one, but especially by several people, will make us feel small. But Jesus, again in verse 3, says that small is the only size allowed into His kingdom. So He says, take a couple people, take two or three people with you to address the situation. If the brother or sister still refuses to turn from their sin, then the third step, verse 17, is to bring the matter before the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Our Presbyterian friends disagree with us on what church here means. 
The word is ecclesia, which, as I've said repeatedly, is the, the called out and called together ones. It's the gathering, the congregation, the gathered people of God. Jesus says, bring the issue to the gathered people of God. Our Presbyterian friends uh, interpret church to mean elders. So this is when the elders will often get involved and not the whole church. But here he says, bring it to the church. Bring it to the whole gathering. We might think that it's unnecessary to tell the whole church at this point. Why would Jesus want this to be brought to the church? Because, again, he loves us too much to let us persist in sin. So if one person doesn't work, if two or three people doesn't work, then Jesus sends all of us to see if we will change. This is the church's way of saying together, we love you. We want you to come back to Christ. I love how David Platt describes this. Platt says, quote, God loves us so much that if we're caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. The whole church goes after this straying sheep out of love. The church understands that love isn't tolerance. Love is about rescuing people from themselves. A church who's not willing to do this is not willing to love a brother or sister in Christ. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say, if this brother or sister still doesn't repent, still refuses to listen, then the fourth and final step is to remove that person from the church. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So Jesus says to treat this individual like someone who's betrayed the covenant, a tax collector, or someone who's not believing the covenant, an unbeliever, a a Gentile. In other words, Jesus says to treat this person like an unbeliever or someone who's not part of the church. Jesus isn't saying that the church makes them an unbeliever. He's saying that the church is no longer affirming that they are a believer. The church in good faith and with a clear conscience cannot affirm that this person is a believer in Jesus Christ any longer because of their actions. This is often called excommunication because it removes people not only from the membership of the church but from the Lord's table, from communion. It excommunions us. The, the, the Lord's table is only for repenting sinners who've trusted and are trusting in Christ. Now, I understand, again, it may sound harsh or unloving to do this, but let's keep in mind who's to blame. It's not the church. It's the person who's refusing to line their lives up with the clear teachings of Scripture. It's the unrepentant brother or sister who's repeatedly at every stage, Jesus' language is clear, refuse to listen, refuse to listen, refuse to listen. They're refusing to hear what's true. And so this person disqualifies themselves from being part of the church. Then in these next verses, Jesus anticipates an objection, an objection that inevitably comes up as the church seeks to do this. People especially people in, in America in this, in this day and age, people will ask, who do you think you are? <laughs> By whose authority are you kicking me out of the church? By whose authority are you removing a member from the church? You're not God. You can't do that. Well, simply put, in verse 18, Jesus absolutely says we can do that. And he gives the church the authority to do that. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I know that's language that can be vague, but it's language that's repeated from just a couple chapters earlier. If you'll flip over to chapter 16, verse 19. Chapter 16, verse 19. This is where uh, Jesus has asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers, yes, and on this rock, I'll build my church, Peter. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then verse 19, he tells Peter and the disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. So, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Jesus says he's right. And he's going to build his church on that. And then he says, I'm going to give you these keys of the kingdom so that you can bind and loose things on earth that become realities in heaven. What's going on here? Well, the keys of the kingdom seems to be, I think most interpreters would agree, it's this authority given to the disciples first, the apostles first, and then later to the church over in chapter 18. We know it's the whole church because he's talking about church discipline. It's the authority given to the church to evaluate someone's confession, to evaluate whether what they're saying and doing as Christians is true, whether they're a true gospel confessor or not. The church is given the task of affirming who on earth is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not, don't hear me say, the church makes someone a kingdom of, uh, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. No, the church has the task of affirming those who are. Just like Jesus did with Peter. He heard Peter's confession, he approved of it, and he affirmed it. Then he gives the disciples, and then later the church, the same kind of responsibility. So when the church carries out this work of receiving members and dismissing members, we're we're using the keys of the kingdom. We're binding and loosing. Binding and loosing, by the way, is language drawn from Judaism at that time where a, a scribe or a rabbi would hear something and they would agree that it is indeed um, according to Torah or not. That a person has to be bound by it because it's in the Bible or not. So this binding or loosing is the ability of the church to stand in front of a person and affirm whether they're there confession is a true confession or not so who has the authority where does this authority comes from well this authority comes emphatically from Jesus Christ the church authorizes the church excuse me Jesus authorizes the church to do this binding and loosing work but then understanding Jesus understanding how hard this work will be in verses 19 and 20 he gives us two promises Verse 19, first promise. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He promises his support when the church does this incredibly hard work. He's just talked about the scenario when two or three believers confront another believer in sin. Now he says that when two believers, at least two believers, gather in unison to confront sin in the church, they have the full support of the Father in heaven. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, he says. This is an important promise because Jesus knows that this will be extremely difficult and that we'll be tempted to shy away from it. So he encourages his church to remember that the resources of heaven are behind them. Then verse 20, he gives a second promise. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This verse is misused all the time, and I know I've done it. This verse is not talking about how God is with us when two or three gather for a prayer meeting. It's not talking about that. God is always with us. God is always with His people. One, two, five, a thousand. He's always there. <laughs> Praying, singing, whatever. God is always with His people. In context, Jesus is saying when two or three, here's that language of two or three people again, two or three people get involved with another person and their sin, I'm there. I'm right there. Don't be afraid, church. I'm there. I know this is hard. I know you don't want to do this. I know people are going to misjudge your motives, misinterpret your actions. I'm there. I'm with you. When you gather in my name to do this, I am with you. What mercy, what mercy that Jesus doesn't just command us to do this, but he assures us that he'll be with us when we do. What mercy he's given the church, promising his presence. As we go after straying sheep, he goes with us. Indeed, he goes before us. Now, Scripture doesn't provide a list of offenses that warrant this kind of church discipline. There's not a passage that says, do church discipline in these circumstances. Boy, I sure wish there were. So how have churches normally addressed what's called corrective church discipline? 
or church discipline that works to correct someone's behavior or remove them if they fail to change. Well, churches often try to answer, try to ask and answer three good questions when determining whether discipline is needed. First, is the sin outward? Is the sin outward? Is the sin outward? This excludes private sins of the heart like pride or lust. Or we would all be under discipline. Amen? (laughs) Because we all have that on a daily basis. We all have pride and selfishness and all kinds of sin in us every day. Is the sin outward? In other words, is the sin publicly known? Is the sin doing public damage to the gospel? Do other people know and are other people affected by it? Is it outward? Second question is, is the sin serious? Is the sin serious? Um, When you hit your hand with the hammer and you curse, because you do it, let's be honest, inside at least, when you you hit your hand with a hammer and you curse, that's not a serious sin. (laughs) That's not a serious sin. There are multitudes of sins that we could say aren't serious. Of course, all sin is serious in a sense. But there are certain sins that are more serious than others. For example, a man who's cheating on his wife or a wife who's cheating on her husband is way more serious than your language in your garage. If you're stealing from the government or from your company... That's way more serious than oversleeping sometimes. Is the sin serious? Is it serious? Is it outward and is it serious? And then finally, the third question is, is the sinner unrepentant? Is the sinner unrepentant? Does the person see the sin as sin and are they willing to turn from it? This is so crucial. It's one thing to have sin. We all have it. It's another thing to be battling sin, to be taking serious measures to put it to death. Those who show no desire to battle their sin, and if it's serious and if it's outward, need to come under the process of church discipline. Much wisdom is needed here. Much prayer is needed here. You and your elders, we should be praying often for how and when to engage, if to engage in these processes. It's not always as clear as we'd like it to be, but these three questions do bring some clarity. Church discipline is hard because it means confronting people we love. Church discipline is, though, about love. As I said earlier, church discipline is about rescue and restoration, not punishment. Church discipline is about restoring people out of love. I discipline my children because I love them, not because I hate them. I want my children to grow and flourish. I want good things for them, not bad things for them. The Bible tells us that if we're left without discipline, Callie just read in Hebrews 12, if we're left without discipline, then we're like illegitimate children. Church discipline is one way God shows sinners His love. He loves us enough to not leave us alone. He loves us too much to just leave us where we are. He loves us so much that He will come after us and He will send His army of believers to come after us if necessary. He comes after us through loving, gentle, patient, prayerful engagement from our brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves us so much that He's sending real flesh and blood people into our lives to care for our souls so so that we aren't deceived, so that we aren't deceiving ourselves, so so that we don't die and go to hell. Church discipline turns out to be one of the most loving things God can do for you. Church discipline turns out to show us and to preach the gospel in profound ways. You see, in the gospel, a holy God comes after unholy people. A holy God gives us mercy instead of wrath, gives us love instead of judgment, gives us life instead of death. In the gospel, God points out your sin and then says He wants to be your Savior anyways. These realities are displayed when the church practices church discipline. Through discipline, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to the person under discipline. Now, I know that a lot of churches don't and aren't doing this. I pray that, frankly, I've prayed many times that we never have to. 
or don't have to very often. But scripture shows us that the church is more like a gated community than a public park. You see, anyone can go into a public park. But only certain people can live in gated communities. Of course, anyone should be allowed to worship with the church, to attend a church's public services. But it doesn't follow that anyone should be allowed to take up residence in the church's house, to join the church, or to stay a member of the church. The church body, like any family, has boundaries. It should be clear to all who lives in the house and who's just over for a visit. And as with any relationship, when certain boundaries are crossed, there are consequences. Membership is the boundary line for the church. Discipline is the consequence when boundary lines aren't honored. Just as many of us have to set boundaries in our relationships, and when we do, it leads to life and flourishing. So also the church must have boundaries and work to enforce them for our own good and our own flourishing Church discipline is hard because it means confronting people we love, but Jesus tells us to hold one another accountable. This is one of the prices we must pay as we together follow Jesus on the road to the cross. A road, by the way, that Jesus traveled with gladness. A road that he traveled for the good of others. A road that we join him on as often as we must when we practice church discipline. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, these are hard things. And maybe not hard to understand, but certainly hard to embrace. Hard to agree with. And I know that many in the room are wondering whether anything I've just said is really good, right, and true. Whether it's beautiful. Whether it's inherently valuable for a church to have the authority to remove people from the church. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would instruct us. I pray that you would govern what we think and feel about this issue. I pray that we would not be led astray by the winds of this age, the, uh, the cult of tolerance, we might call it. We pray that we would lovingly, gently, patiently, proactively go after one another as occasion requires for the sake of each other's souls and for the sake of the integrity of this church. Help us, Father. We need your help in this. Give us wisdom on when and how and if to practice church discipline and give us courage and grace to do so when we need to. I pray you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.